Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. As part of our look at the new world of work and the skills needed to thrive in a world of disruption, we're here today at the University of Guelph. Actually, we're in the old Ontario Agriculture College, where Canada's most famous economist, the late John Kenneth Galbraith, got his start nearly a century ago. Today, Galbraith wouldn't recognize the economics of farming or the science of food or the skills needed to be a globally successful farmer or food scientist or ag trader in the 2020s. But I'm pretty sure Galbraith would share Evan Fraser's ambitions for Canada as an agriculture powerhouse and the disruptive thinking he's leading inside Guelph's new Errol Food Institute. Evan Fraser is the Institute's first director, and people all over the map are listening to him. He was an advisor to Dominic Barton's Economic Growth Council, and he's attracting some impressive private sector money to invest in student-run businesses that are also developing the skills of the future. Evan's my guest today, and he's joined by two of his student entrepreneurs, Amberly Ritz and Leah Blushmitt. Their mission, to turn food waste into nutrition for school kids. Evan, Amberly, Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. So let's start with food. What did you have for breakfast, Evan? Well, for every day for about the last 20 years, I've had a smoothie. Two bananas, a few blueberries, a bunch of orange juice, a bit of yogurt, and a handful of spinach. So you're a person of routine. Uh, when it comes to the first 20 minutes, yes. Okay, Amberly. Yeah, for me, I do something a bit different. For the last two years, I've been doing my own version of a bulletproof coffee. So basically, coffee, collagen, protein powder, some MCT oil, and some coconut milk powder. Kind of like uh, nutrition in a cup, similarity to Evans, yeah. Have you patented that? That sounds fantastic. Oh, no, this has been developed by David Asprey as well. Yeah, butter <laughs> coffee or it might be known as as well, no. Okay, we're getting better. Leah. Uh, so mine's pretty boring. I have oatmeal in the morning. Uh, <laughs> Old school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I only changed that about six months ago. I decided to switch over from eggs just to save a little bit of time in the morning and increase my the plant uptake in my diet. Time and food is probably something we should uh, get into. Well, I can out boring you. I had Cheerios. Uh, <laughs> Uh, all, uh, all about time. So, Evan, let's uh, let's start with this place, with the Errol uh, Food Institute. Uh, what's what's the thinking behind it? So, the University of Guelph is Canada's food university, and we have undisputed bench strength from from the farm all the way through to the fork and and, and beyond. But there was no single place where this expertise could be relayed or could be could be aggregated. Uh, and so, there was a, a very generous gift from the Errol Family Foundation to establish essentially a common storefront for the University of Guelph's food. And we have a mission to elevate both the university and also Canada's game, essentially, when it comes to um, being at the forefront of discussions around food, sustainability, and nutrition. Evan, I want to get your thoughts on how we as a country need to be thinking about the food challenge. The Barton Report, which I mentioned earlier, which you were instrumental in helping inform, sort of opened a lot of people's eyes, including uh, the federal governments, to the 21st century opportunity for Canada. We should be a global power in the world of food, but in ways that are much more than just mass production. Tell us a bit about how your thinking has evolved when you look at the Canadian challenge and you look at the this planet of 7 billion people that is hungrier by the day and how we can manage, manage the earth, manage uh, solving that hunger problem and also sort of grow, literally grow Canadian prosperity. So it's a, it's a really fascinating challenge. And, and the 
Dominic Barton's report suggested that Canada should strive to become the global leader in trusted, safe and sustainable food. And there's some interesting words there, right? Trusted, safe and sustainable is, is at the center of essentially the value proposition for, for Canadian agriculture, which means that we need to be creating a value-added product. This isn't about exporting bulk commodities. This is about creating a high level of value. So instead of exporting the grains or the flour, we're actually going to start trying to export the bread, putting the value on it. And it's not just going to be any old bread. It's going to be safe, sustainable, trusted bread. And so there's a huge amount of things that have to go into that regulatory reform to make sure our standards are amongst the highest in the world. We need the best technologies to establish safe and sustainable and to ensure safe and sustainable. Um, and we need to be able to brand ourselves locally uh, to benefit Canadian consumers and globally so that we can grow our, our export markets in order to become that trusted supplier of safe and sustainable. And we also need a lot of human talent. And I'm wondering, Amberly and, and Leah, as you kind of think about your careers and what you're studying, how well prepared you feel you are skills-wise for these challenges? Is the school system helping you develop the right skills? What do we need to be thinking about differently to ensure that you're going to lead us in a great way through this food transition? Leah, maybe I can start with you. Absolutely. I think that the skills that I'm learning now are certainly vital, will be vital to my career going forward. A lot of what we've learned, and particularly through the program that we're in, is about our ability to work as a team. So for me, largely, it's been the ability to, to plan and to manage different people and different personalities and trying to balance being a leader while also raising other voices, which I think is really important to be able to make sure that everyone has a seat at the table and that everyone is able to contribute their, their best skills and put their best foot forward into the work that we're able to do. So that's been largely what what this program has been able to, to help me with and something that I've really felt that I've been t able to develop uh, through this process. And additionally, the skills that I'm learning through my master's program will certainly be of value. Being able to think critically is is a major area of uh, that I think is very important. Can I stop you there? Because sure. every employer says, yeah, we want more <laughs> critical thinking. Uh, it's become the buzz uh, term uh, of, of much of the skills discussion. Mm -hmm. What does that mean when, when you say you're developing critical thinking? So for me, being able to think critically means to not take what you are being told at face value, to really think about it in depth and to be able to form your own opinions, whether or not your opinions agree with say, people who are more advanced in their careers with your superiors. Um, I think it can be very difficult for young people coming into the workforce to be able to to have that voice and be able to find that voice. But I think that it is vital and that it makes you it makes you more of an asset because you are able to show that you have these opinions, that you have thought about it, and that you've put that kind of effort into what it is that you're doing. So, so I'm looking at Professor Fraser over here, who's probably like trembling that uh, the, the students <laughs> oh God, are rising up saying? against what him. <laughs> <laughs> Can't they just repeat what I say? So, Evan, how do you teach critical thinking and how do you, how do you instill it, especially in this environment of ag and food science? So there's so many th interesting things to say, but for, the first is to actually point specifically at Am Amberly and Leah and point out that Amberly is a geography student and Leah is an environmental science student. And right there, you've got one of the key ingredients, um, which is uh, bringing people of different disciplines and orientations together into teams to work on things. Is that by design or did you just lock into having? <laughs> well, this is, is, so this, 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 is, this is where a little bit of the magic happens or a little bit of the, 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 pl the place where I play a small role. 
and that what we're doing with the Errol Food Institute is drawing students explicitly together one day a week into interdisciplinary teams and giving them the task of finding a non-academic partner who has a problem and then working with that non-academic partner to solve that problem over an eight-month period. We've got 17 people from all colleges of the university, including a philosopher, participating in this pro- inaugural year for this program. Uh, our anticipation is to grow it in subsequent years, uh, actually to create a new g- degree credential, hopefully at some point around this sort of idea about food and innovation based on interdisciplinary teamwork for non-academic partners. And I have to hasten to add, this is in addition to the regular science training that they get through their theses. So most students come into the University of Guelph and spend about a day a week being a TA. Well, instead of doing that, they're working for the Errol Food Institute alongside their thesis. So we're trying to blend disciplinary training in core scientific and social science areas with this interdisciplinary teamwork. Just to clarify for our listeners, people come into the Institute, you put them together on teams. Do you select those teams to ensure there's a mix of skills? So what we did this year, which I think we will do with some modification next year and following, is spend two days intensively in September workshopping problems and teams. And the goal at the end of the two days is that everyone has a problem and a team. My one requirement is that the teams have to have representatives of at least two different colleges. So I am social engineering the interdisciplinarity, but I'm leaving it in terms of a facilitated workshop to people to self-organize. So, Amberly, when you come into this environment, do you feel you're adequately prepared for it or sufficiently prepared or... Into the team environment, you mean, with the Aero Food Institute? Yes. Um, Actually, I have kind of thrived in interdisciplinary nature in the last uh, couple of degrees I've done. I've always been working my way through different non-disciplinary career paths and degrees. So it actually felt quite natural to me. And one of the things I really enjoy doing both in school and in my consulting work is translating knowledge. And I get really excited about working with different disciplines because I think that will be one of the challenges going forward is to breaking down silos so we can work across ministries or disciplines and and have people around a table in which, you know, we need a a great diversity of people to solve, um, you know, some of the pressing food-related problems and just world complex problems coming forward. And I was really excited to have the four additional team members that we all gravitated uh, around a project and a problem having to do with uh, food waste. So it was a very natural fit for all of us. So diversity is such an important word. When we, we, we talk about diversity, we probably most of our minds go to diversity of experience and background and not sufficiently to diversity of thought and diversity of skills, which you're uh, starting to starting to demonstrate here. So you, your business, Amberly, as I understand it, is essentially taking food waste and blending it, throwing it in a blender and putting it in a tube for school kids. Is that a fair way of describing it? Yeah, in the most basic level, I guess. Yes. Where did the idea come from? So this is really born out of an idea that came out of my work with the Ontario Student Nutrition Program. And through different initiatives, we noticed that there was a huge surplus of food that was often just being sent to landfill or spoiling before it could be processed and preserved. So given that there was this huge supply, we thought to ourselves, well, what's a way that this could be transformed into a nutritious snack in another form? Does the company have a name? We have a number of working titles at the moment. Uh, Maybe we'll have a contest with our listeners to crowdsourcing. Good idea. That would be great. Any yeah. ideas? Welcome. Just ping uh, Leah and Emily yeah. on social media <laughs> with uh, with suggestions. Hey, let me let me just jump in with a with a plug for the University of Guelph here, because on one hand, we've got 
business incubation training opportunities offered through our Office of Research Innovation and our Accelerator Program. And we've got food science labs that offer help to do product development. So, so this team is a great example of how interdisciplinarity and using the full infrastructure of a big institution like the University of Guelph can actually actually has has all of the required components or skill sets and 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 details required to sort of launch this kind of enterprise. Well, and that's exactly why business incubation works so well on on university campuses, which yeah. we've seen for generations at MIT and Stanford, but uh, across Canada as well, because you're harnessing the entrepreneurship and ambition of an emerging generation with the knowledge that's all around us in a place like this. But Evan, what's the What's the ambition of the accelerator here? Is it to develop these skills and this new way of thinking, or is it to produce kind of the next Google of food? Well, I think, I think the answer is both, to be honest. I mean, at one level, we are trying to demonstrate, and I'm speaking sort of as a university sector person, we're trying to demonstrate our value to society. And, and one way of demonstrating our value of, to society is to make sure that our science is translated into things in the marketplace and, and, and that, that, that people can benefit from. Um, so that's a, that's a broad philosophical ambition that I have for the university sector in general. Specific to the University of Guelph, I want us to be known of as the Silicon Valley for food. And one of my missions as, as part of the, the director of the Aral Food Institute is to, is to help the university and the entire ecosystem, which includes our big retailers and our big food processors, is all the way through to our small entrepreneurs and, 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 our, and our connections with government, provincial and federal and, and indeed municipal, to actually move forward to create that critical mass of connections between industry, scientists and the academy, um, government to 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 develop that that Silicon Valley for food, which I think is a, a very good goal for Southwestern Ontario and Canada as a whole. Lee and Amberly, what what do you need to make this the Silicon Valley of food? That's a great ambition. It sounds good. You're the ones who have to make it happen in a way because this is this is uh, you know the future is yours. I think that the resources that are currently available to us have been what have made uh, what have made this project possible. So as Evan has mentioned, the accelerator program has really been able to be there for us to help to develop the business. We're also working with the Guelph Food Innovation Center, where we can actually go in and create create the product that we're working on. So we have access to this kitchen and we have the ability to figure out whether or not it's going to be scalable and to figure out all the um, issues to do with processing. So for, for us in particular, that has been a huge support and it's been a huge boon to us. Um, and without which this, our project never would have taken off. It would never would have even gotten to the point that we're at now. And to follow up on that, also having a really um, strong base of community partners. You know, Evan was able to connect the groups with some prospective community partners that we could work with to really get a true sense of what the real world problem is. And in terms of our case, I think just bringing some knowledge about the world of student nutrition and, and some of the possibilities and things that haven't worked in the past, really, I think what uh, led our project to kind of start running instead of being at the walking stage very early on. So, you know, having a community partner, the Ontario Student Nutrition Program, and, and working with them and, and seeing them seeing the value in working with the university partner and that it can be more than just a, a research project, but can actually have tangible outcomes is really a, an exciting shift. I think that's happening between community and university. And, and then, and then we've got 
a, a large amount of funding to put behind this and create this opportunity for students. So we've got the, the extraordinarily generous $20 million gift from the Errol Family Foundation uh, with which we were able to leverage uh, a, a, an almost $80 million grant from the federal government through the Food from Thought Initiative, which is funded through the Canada First Research Excellence Fund, where, where an explicit mandate of, of both of those uh, donors is to create value to Canadians in the ag food sector. So one of the classic criticisms of Canada is we do pure research really well, pound for pound, as well as anyone uh, on the planet. We're pretty good at entrepreneurship, at uh, starting up companies like uh, you're doing. We're really not so good at scaling up companies, at turning them into viable commercial enterprises. And I know, Amberly and Leah, you're, you're in the early hours uh, or early innings of this. But as you kind of stare into the future and think about growing your yet-to-be-named company uh, <laughs> into, something, uh, into something fantastic, what do, you, what do you see as the big mountains to climb? I know in terms of our case, a lot of what you end up seeing is production being moved to other areas of the world. So again, this is very specific to um, a food product and to food production. And you do see these being moved to other areas of the world because of the cost of doing business within Ontario. And I wonder if there are ways to support businesses to be able to continue having Canadian production. I won't I don't feel that I can comment on exactly what those ways should be at this point in time, um, but just understanding I think you that- you should be able to comment on that. You're trying to create a business. We need you to succeed. So that's one of my questions. What do, what do you need to succeed? But we Well, continue. just in terms of specifics about the type of supports that we're looking at, I think there's a number of different avenues that you can go, that you can go to be able to provide that support, but having support for businesses to be able to make it viable to exist within Canada and to exist within Ontario would be probably one of the biggest things. So these rotten tomatoes that are coming out of greenhouses in the Leamington area, are, can those be shipped to other countries and then put in that big blender and ship back here in tubes? So we should make it clear that we're not actually working with rotten fruits and vegetables. <laughs> Um, I couldn't resist saying rotten tomatoes. So. <laughs> That's fair. Um, and our project did originally start largely based around the idea of reducing tomato waste. But one of the barriers that we come that we're uh, that we come across in this is that is the grading system. So you hear about this a lot when you get into production, when you get into agriculture, is that different marketplaces are limited by what they can carry based on the grading systems. And so it's not even necessarily that. So the food that we're using is not bad. It is. It's good food. It's perfectly yeah, it just edible. Hasn't gone to... uh, it just doesn't meet certain requirements. It doesn't meet certain standards in terms of size or in terms of shape. So if it's asymmetrical, that tends to be worth a lower value. And so that's how we kind of came to this point to to be able to reduce food waste. That's why we're using those particular products is because they are still good. They're just not um, good for sale in the consumer marketplace. So not rotten tomatoes, but asymmetrical. Tomatoes. Asymmetrical peaches. Aesthetically pleasing. Amberly, what are the, the the big challenges that you foresee in terms of growing growing your enterprise? Yeah, I think it's really that uh, step from small enterprise to sustainable large enterprise. You know, I noticed this in my previous consulting work, working with some small business uh, food startups and how, you know, they did really well at the small scale, but getting to the next step was really challenging. And and personally going out a couple of years back and searching for grants and other funding opportunities, even business loans were extremely hard to come by. You know, the, the requirements you had to meet to be successfully, uh, you know, awarded a loan from 
from a bank or just even a governmental grant was very hard and arduous. So I think there needs to be more support around growing businesses. Maybe in our remaining time, we can talk a bit about Canada's uh, overall challenge, the macro challenge of making Canada a, a, a food power, as we talked about briefly at the beginning. Canada's still a major exporter, but I think we've slipped. Uh, we used to be third, and now we're, we're fifth. And you look at a country like Brazil's raced ahead of us um, by, you know, I think it's $20 billion a year. Evan, what what's Canada missing? So- I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting. And, and, and you have to go back almost to uh, the origins of our, our history as a country. I mean, we are, have always been, to a large extent, exporters of fairly unprocessed commodities, whether those were uh, the pine, pine logs for, for masts in the British Army or, or beaver pelts or all the way through. And, and what the challenge laid out by the Dominic Barton's report last year was that we need to change a paradigm, especially in ag food, which is away from a bulk commodity export kind of model to a value-added model. And, and there's companies like Maple Leaf that have been well rewarded by pursuing antibiotic-free meat. For instance, our our grain industry, our soybean industry, is 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 being well rewarded by selling GM genetically modified free soybeans into the edible soybean market in Japan. So this is the the edamame and miso market. There's lots of examples of sectors of our food economy that are really being well rewarded right now for pursuing a value added approach as opposed to a volume approach. And and it's this change of paradigm, which I think I think we're running against a large part of our history as a nation, which is required in order to meet the challenge uh, and the ambitions laid out, say, by, by the Barton Report. So it, one of the old paradigms is that you add value closer to the, closer to the consumer. Doesn't matter what the business is, you get it close to the consumer, that's where you uh, add the value for reasons of scale. In the food world, because we're, we're, we're not going to have that scale anytime soon, although we're sitting right next door to 350 million consumers and hundreds of millions more just uh, south of that. But how do we add the value closer to home, Evan, and then ship it to, uh, to those markets? Well, I think, I think what we have to realize is that the markets themselves are changing. And for instance, Singles Day, this is this massive online shopping day in that's, that's origins, it comes, it comes out of Asia, is much larger than either Black Friday or Cyber, Cyber Monday. Um, in post-surveys, uh, post-consumer surveys of Singles Day, people are looking for safety and quality above all other attributes. And, and we have to recognize that this enormously uh, wealthy emerging middle class uh, in Asia is looking for quality, safety, safety, uh, sustainability, nutrition. And these are the things that we can develop our business model, our value proposition around as a country. And it's this sort of argument where we're going to be selling not just to anybody, but to discriminating uh, international buyers who are looking for these attributes that we can we can bank on we can become that safe trusted sustainable supplier for the 21st century and it's it's a change of paradigm and it runs a little bit against um you know 150 years of canadian history but but it's it's going to be required if we want to take advantage of these opportunities so Amberly and Leah, when you hear about these challenges and these enormous opportunities in the world of food, but also the world of work, which is changing, sometimes it feels like at, uh, at, at, at warp speed, what do you feel are your biggest challenges or will be your biggest challenges over the next few years? Leah, maybe we can uh, start with you. 
So I think one of the biggest challenges that is faced by our generation is how work is changing to be less stable and to be a little bit more precarious. So entrepreneurial opportunities are very exciting, but they do come with a certain cost to lifestyle. There's a lot of work and there's a lot of effort that gets put into them. And this can be to the detriment of of your life stability. So it can be challenging to have that kind of work-life balance. And for you, Amberly? Yes, for me, it's more around the unknown of the future skill sets that are going to be needed and how rapidly, you know, high tech, highly specialized skill sets are being needed. And that being said, while it's unknown, I think there's also some pretty good forecasting and guessing one can take. And uh, for future students coming out looking for jobs, I would just encourage them to take every opportunity they can to learn something new about a different uh, sector. Because for me, what really helped was just volunteering in different capacities and trying new careers so I could build a really dynamic skill set that allowed me to pivot in terms of whatever was next on the horizon. So I think just trying to be as diverse as possible is really helpful and also leads you to new exciting paths that maybe you wouldn't have considered otherwise. So we hear almost every day about the need for more STEM students and everything's kind of STEM, 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 or maybe some STEAM if, uh, if we throw in arts. Curious how the critical skills or the human skills that uh, we sometimes call them are woven into the sciences in what you're doing and how, Leah, maybe how we can do that, uh, how we can do that better. So I think one of the major focuses that we need in terms of some of the physical sciences is encouraging people to improve their communication skills. It's something that you come across a lot in the physical sciences is people that are absolutely brilliant within their field, but have no ability to communicate that to other people and to really communicate the importance. And that's actually been one of the interesting processes undergoing uh, this sort of business and marketing training. I've started to really come to believe that everyone should do business and marketing training because I think it really does let you, it gives you the ability to understand better how how to communicate your ideas and how to communicate the importance of what you're doing and your ideas to a larger audience. So not just the people with whom you work most closely, um, not even just to governments or people who are giving you funding, but the wider audience so that uh, the information that you are trying to get out there can gain more traction, that you're able to, people are better able to understand what it is that you're doing. So you, you had done an undergrad in biology, if, if I'm correct. Yep, uh, you're focused right. on environmental studies. Is this the first time you've come across kind of as you call it, business business studies? More or less, yes. I started working for a startup for another startup about a year and a half ago, but that was pretty much my first foray into business. Yes. And how does that help you? Give give us a bit more uh, color there on how that helps you as a biologist um, and as an environmental scientist? Well, I think it really does give me the ability to kind of organize my ideas and to, I think we can become very narrowly focused on what it is that we're researching. And so being forced to communicate those ideas to a more general audience makes me take a step back and understand not only where my audience is coming from, but where this research fits in, in the broader landscape. And so what are the important aspects, not only for my audience, but how is it important to the rest of the country? How does it fit into the economy? How does it fit into all of these broader areas? And so I think being able to look at it from a more, from a wider scope has been really beneficial to understanding not only where it's coming from and where it is now, but understanding where it can go and where it needs to go. And Amberly, you come from more of a humanities background. How challenging is it to connect with the scientists, the pure scientists and what you're what you're doing? 
Yeah. So initially it was a challenge to learn some of the disciplinary jargon, as I would call it. But once you kind of get an understanding of what it is, the focal point of what uh, makes that person tick or their main uh, priority, I think it it's actually been not too hard to uh, make that bridge and cross that disciplinary boundary because as soon as you're able to you know, navigate what that central point is, its collaboration isn't too as challenging as it is previously if you're not open to those different vantage points. I wonder what thoughts you both have on what we should be doing differently or thinking differently as a society to get more, more diversity into STEM. I think having more female leadership, more stories of success and that it's possible, maybe Lee and I and our team will be an example into the future. But for me personally, that was a huge motivation is having very strong female leads in business and showing that they can make a like work life balance and also just being successful and confident in their field. Yeah, for me, I would say largely the same that strong mentorship has been one of the biggest reasons that I've gotten to this point. It's also been a lack of people saying no. So I've had mentorship from both men and women across my career. And I do have specific people in my life, including my current supervisor, who have been so encouraging and so supportive of the work that I am doing that I have never questioned my ability to do it. Or You do get those questions naturally, of course. But for the, ma- the majority of the time, it, it's just that's coming from internally. And the people surrounding me are the ones who are giving this unyielding and unending support of the work that I am doing and telling me that I can go forward and that this is possible. Those are great messages, which we've got to shout across the country. But what I also love about what you're doing and about this conversation is that it shows us how STEM is more than coding. STEM also means working with food, with asymmetrical peaches and getting those uh, into tubes to solve, you know, one of society's great problems, which is childhood nutrition. So that's fantastic that you're taking that on. Uh, Maybe we can wrap up with a bit of a crystal ball question. And I'll start with you, Evan, if we can look out uh, 10 years, what do you want the Institute to be and how will it be helping Canada get to where you think we should be? Well, I think that one of the biggest challenges facing the 21st century, not the only one, of course, but one of the biggest challenges is how to sustainably and nutritiously feed the world's growing population. Uh, I think that Canada, with its um, abundant resource base, with its uh, clean environment, with its talented workforce, with its innovative post-secondary institutions, can and should play a major global leadership role in that. And I hope that the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph is at the vanguard of that conversation. Leah, let me leave the last word uh, with you. Our our report, which is called uh, Humans Wanted, is really about the value of human skills to the 2020s and to the generation that's going to be driving this country in the decades ahead. What do you think are going to be the big challenges and, and the opportunities for you and your generation in the 2020s as you take on this changing world? I think that there are big opportunities to draw in a younger workforce to uh, to listen to their perspectives. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest opportunities, that we are a generation that is so used to change and that we're used to change happening very quickly. And I think that that gives us a unique perspective on what is possible and what it is that we can do in the future. And so I really think that that kind of perspective is what will keep us moving forward and listening to those opinions and listening to those viewpoints will be vital to continuing to grow and continuing to make this the changes that we need to for a more sustainable future. 
This has been such an inspiring conversation. Leanne Amberley, thank you for your time and good luck with uh, your business in creating the, uh, the the Google of food for, uh, for the decades ahead. And Evan, thank you for uh, sharing your story of the Institute here and, and good luck with creating the Silicon Valley of food <laughs> here, although we should be creating something different, uniquely Canadian, which uh, I, I think the, th- the three of you will do and we'll all be uh, behind you in that journey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by Peter Henderson. You can reach us at RBC Disruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.